In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. When any amount of money goes missing from any level of government, it's never a good thing. It could be a federal government missing millions in the margins or a province or a big city over or underestimating something. Doesn't matter. It's taxpayers' money, and whether the mistake was honest or intentional, it's never a good look when you can't quite explain how it happened. But when it happens in a small town or a tiny rural municipality, where the government is just a handful of people, and it's made up of your neighbors and your local business owners, your friends and your enemies. And every dollar matters because everyone has their own plans for it. And people already have concerns about cronyism and corruption. And all of a sudden, half a million bucks is gone. And the explanation isn't satisfying. And the budget lies in ruins. Oh boy. That's when things get really ugly. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. J.R. Patterson has written for Maisonneuve, The Washington Post, The Guardian, other publications, including this story about missing money in a tiny town for the walrus. Hey, J.R. Hi. I want you to start maybe by telling me about Westlake Gladstone. Where is it and what's it like? Right. So Westlake Gladstone is a is a rural municipality in southeastern Manitoba. It's about 700 square miles, um, mostly farmland. But it's also, it also has um, some river in it. It has quite a bit of, of uh, highway. And a large part of it is, is the Big Grassy March, which is... Um, uh, Ducks Unlimited project. Let's start maybe with the theft at the center of the story. Tell me about the press conference in October of 2020. What did the mayor announce? Right. So this this came as a surprise to I'd say almost everybody in the in the municipality. I like most people heard about it through 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 a newspaper. Uh, a nearby town had reported on the. On the press conference, they'd called in the reporters from this small town paper. And what it basically amounted to was the mayor, the outgoing mayor now, Scott Kinley, had called a press conference um, to announce the loss of nearly 500 grand that had been siphoned from the municipal bank account in several transactions in an alleged cyber attack. So he sort of outlined the 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 dates and the the vague notions they had of the attack because they this is still an ongoing investigation that they are embroiled in I won't I won't say 
criminally, but I'll say legally. And this was a press conference to alert the public. Before we get into the investigation around the money, just in general, because uh, this is this is kind of the real heart of your story. What do municipal politics look like in a place like Westlake Gladstone? You know, who runs and who makes up the council? Right. So the, the politics in this rural municipality are very similar to other rural politics across Canada. I mean, the names of these governmental constructions changes in Manitoba. It happens to be rural municipalities. Uh, in Quebec, it's Ville. In, in Toronto, there are townships. But in, in Manitoba, rural municipalities in Manitoba, we have what's called a weak mayor system, which means that the mayor does not have power that the other elected members of council don't also have. It's sort of um, an equalizing and equalizing this form of government. Uh, in this particular government, which I think, again, it stands for a lot of other um, uh, local rural governments across Canada, there are six councillors and one mayor, each of whom are elected by local constituents, each of whom have one vote regarding local goings-on, which is everything from uh, who and what should get a building permit in the, in the local area to how garbage is collected. So elected people decide what gets done in the area that's under their purview. Now, there are also people that are hired by the municipality, which ostensibly means hired by the elected council. And those hired people enact the council's demands. The, um, people like the chief administration officer, the recreation director, the public works foreman. So it's these hired people who decide how things get done. And that's uh, local government in a nutshell. And here's the other thing that your story reveals. All these people know each other and live next to each other and like are all part of the same circle, right? Well, yeah. I mean, usually in these small towns, the, and this, I'm sure we'll get to this a little bit later, but there's something about the small town myth that both plays into this idea that everybody knows each other and feeds off this idea that everybody knows each other. Because... The small towns of today are very, very different from the small towns of one or two generations ago. And it's not necessarily a given that these people know each other from the outset. And it's not necessarily a given that the people of the municipality know who's been elected or or who's been hired by the municipality. So, yes, there is this sort of camaraderie uh, or cadre sense of, of elected officials, which does lead into this um, chummy aspect that, that maybe got this particular council in a bit of trouble. So as you dug into the story, and we should add here, you know, you're from this area and you describe in your story walking out the door now as a journalist to cover this missing money. What was that like? And and what did you realize when you put on that hat instead of the normal, you know, I'm JR from around here hat? Yeah, I am from this area. I grew up there. Uh, my parents still farm in the area. So, you know, I'm as much a local fixture as anybody. And I can tell you, reporting in your hometown is not pleasant. Uh, a lot of credit has to be given to these local journalists who who go out and run the beat of their own hometown every single day because me just doing this one story uh, turned out to be quite difficult and i don't think this is um this is incongruous to 
to other experiences of other journalists across the country. I mean, what I found was that many people either think that you can solve all their problems or they think you will cause many, many more problems. And I, I won't go so far as to say that I had doors slammed in my face, but uh, a lot of people who know me well enough um, to say hi to me on the street were very, very hesitant to talk to me in terms of this piece because they were, I was coming with some officiality. And I, I mean, I, I wrote this piece for the Walrus magazine and Gladstone, which is the main town of the of the municipality, I uh, I would hesitate to say that a lot of people in town read the Walrus, but there was some there is some officialdom that comes when you show up with a a microphone or a, a I'd even say that a pen and a notepad is even more dangerous looking than a microphone. But uh, you know, it, it's almost a story that you, in another sense need to be from these places to write about because it takes a lot of time to to gain the, the trust of people. You need to sit down with a lot of people. You need to um, meet them at their level and be there with them. And I mean, I, th I think it did help that I do have some, uh, I don't want to say that I'm uh, uh, biased or anything like this, but you know, this is my community as well. And I was seeing it fall apart before me and I wanted to discover why, but I also had a vested interest in finding out what happened to this this missing money, which is what kicked off my investigation. So I think having a bit of that, um, being so in touch with both the problem and the people was very important to getting this story to the point that it, that it ended up being. So let's, let's circle back to the money now. How did it vanish? Like what happened? And initially, were there suspects? So the, the timeline of that money was it was initially found to be gone in January 2020. And that, at that point, the process was started by the council to ascertain what had happened to it. They called all the right people. I mean, this is according to the council itself, again. They called all the right people. They, they checked all the right boxes for what to do when funds go missing. And, but all this was happening under the hood, and nobody in town knew about it. None of the general population had any idea until the aforementioned press conference that we talked about, which was in October 2020. So there was a good uh, nine or 10 months there where the money was gone and nobody knew anything about it. They had the press conference in October, and that's when I, like everybody else, learned about it. And from that moment on, suspicion was rampant. I mean, I, there are some people in town who are very, very certain that the money never left the town at all. And I am sure that if you gave them evidence that it, it was one of these online scam artists that took the money out of the country and it's long gone, they would wholeheartedly deny that and still believe it was still in the town. Some of these grievances run that deep. So a lot of that suspicion is still around. Now, the police did investigate, the RCMP did investigate, and they came to the conclusion that it was, uh, what did they say? I think it was something along the lines of uh, recent, recent arrivals to Canada who thought that they were filling out forms or, or, or uh, in, in reference to a, a job or 
trying to get some online work or something who sort of aided and abetted the alleged cyber criminals. So as, as far as the investigation goes, it's dead in the water as far as the police are concerned. So nobody's actually looking for this money. There is an ongoing litigation between the, the council and the, the local credit union and the insurance company as to who is going to exactly be the head on the spike for this. But um, so it, it has sort of stagnated in that sense, which is which is really not good because there's still a great desire among the people not only to get the money back, but to have some real accountability for what for for who took it and the the process that was followed after it was taken. What did you learn about the council in recent years? What kinds of problems do people talk about in, the, in this town? Um, well, you know, when this council was elected in 2018, there was quite a bit of positivity around it. There were several businessmen, business people, I should say, elected within it, which voters, um, which voters liked. But very quickly, problems started to amass. In, in some people's perspective, there were too many people... Uh, from the town of Gladstone elected, for instance, this sort of epicenter of population that doesn't necessarily represent the entire 700 square miles of the municipality. And it, it didn't really take long for the excitement of having business owners on council turn to being suspicion of conflict of interest, which was another big part of this uh, story. Are those kind of accusations of conflicts of interest unique? Or is that, you know, just kind of part of doing business in the small community where there are only, you know, one or two options for anything the city might want to get done. Yeah, you know, I, I talked to a lot of councillors and mayors from across Canada for this piece, and conflict of interests, whether in fact or only in suspicion, it is a problem absolutely everywhere. It's true about having certain people on a council that it's going to engender suspicion or rankle certain people, but it, 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 yeah, it's almost unavoidable. But, but how one deals with that suspicion is very much in control of, of those being accused. In a lot of towns like this, accusations stem from demeanor more than they stem from fact, because facts can be very light on the ground where rumor is so rampant. And rumor and gossip is something that is just I know it's part and parcel of being in a small town, but it is something that we do need to be very guarded against because it, it can just take off and really change everything, everything for a small town like this. I know there's not a lot of local journalism left out on the prairies. And so what you see, right, is you see people spreading rumors on Facebook. Yeah. Um, you know, Gladstone sits in between two larger centers, uh, Portage La Prairie and Nipua, they both have newspapers, but they both they both just narrowly miss Gladstone. So while there is some coverage of what happens in the Gladstone Westlake area, it really isn't f full coverage. So in that area, it's really word of mouth. And if, if you're going to get your news through word of mouth, you need a good bullshit detector because most gossip doesn't really hold up if you hold a candle to it. And it doesn't need anything to sustain itself. It just needs a medium to exist in. It just needs to be spoken and, and heard and it can be taken as, as fact. And that is a, it's kind of a silly way to live because you're not, 
you're just taking things as you hear them. Even in a place like Gladstone where you think it would be boring and nothing ever happens, that's not true. There's lots of things that happen. And this is a good case in point of so many things happening that at a certain point, the center just cannot hold any longer. And it gets interest that attracts the national news or, or a national magazine. But if there had all this time, if there had been a journalist asking questions about the decisions the council had been making or following up on local complaints or local gossip, I don't think any of this would have even materialized because people would have been presented with facts and not hearsay. So you talked to a municipal strategist to kind of get a read on how things work in a town like this. Um, and one of the things he told you was about these problems. Oftentimes, they are superficial symptoms of something else. So how did you try and could you pin down that something? What did you hear? And this is something that I came to through the reporting. This, I mean, in the beginning, it really was a follow the money, Woodward and Bernstein kind of story. But over time, it progressed to be this, what, what is the... What is this something else that, that I was told to look for? And I, I just think it's a dissolution of a sense of place. I mean, when things seem to be spiraling out of control, uh, traditionally, I mean, and, and again, I mean this as one or two generations ago, places like Gladstone were far, far away from the rest of the world. And that idea of super localized people with super localized concerns just isn't really true anymore. But we hold on to it because it's, it's grounding. It's sort of a, it's a myth. The, the idea that we need each other to survive didn't, in this case, hold up when the, when the whole issue of the money went down. It was just a pure case of, of finger pointing. You know, the town didn't stick together. They, they fell apart. It was the straw that broke the camel's back. And, you know, that sort of uh, prairie home companion idea comes with a pretty globally in-tuned, savvy resident. They're not, they're not the country rubes that someone might think they are. And they, they know when they're getting screwed, and they're just not sure to, um, how to go about fixing it. If that money's not coming back, and the police consider the investigation dead, it doesn't seem like anybody in this town is going to get closure. What does that mean for the outgoing mayor and the council and sort of the future of the municipality? Like, how do you put something like this back together again, I guess? Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's the million-dollar question here, or the $500,000 question, maybe. You know, I think this is one of those cases where, um, one, it, it becomes very apparent the, the damage that can occur over a relatively short amount of time. I mean, these there are elections every four years, and this year is, is an election year. So yes, individuals can wreak havoc on a on a system, even a system as seemingly large as a municipality. You know, it's it's bigger than one person in that sense. So you wouldn't think that they could do a large amount of damage like that, but they can. And two, moving forward, uh, what does it mean for the community? Um, like I said, this is an election year. Uh, councillors have been campaigning, a new mayor. Uh, a few people are, are running for mayor. A lot of the old council, who was referenced in my piece, decided not to rerun, for uh, not to seek office again, which 
for whatever reason, you know, nobody nobody is exactly sure, but um, they decided against that in a pretty hostile environment, I would say. And as for uh, the incoming nominees, a lot of them are addressing a lot of the concerns that I brought up in the piece, which is questions about the ward system, which is an old system of government that the uh, municipalities used to have in Manitoba, about the, the money, about transparency. So there has been, in this election cycle, a greater push for these candidates to tell the people what they are standing for, what they will be seeking when they get office, and how to communicate with them should they be elected. So I think it has, you know, if, if, if there are upsides to all this, I think it has led to a more transparent election cycle and hopefully will lead to a, a more transparent council and maybe a general feeling of lightness in the town. I mean, it got pretty heavy there in the last few years of the old council and it really sunk the spirit of the place and the, the people in it. I mean, I, I talked to people who, hated living in that town at that point and wanted to move away and felt like it wasn't their home anymore. And they, they credited a lot of that feeling directly to the way that the local government was operating the town. And I mean, this is another thing that had surprised me about the piece is that I had no idea that the, the council could affect daily life on such a emotional level. I knew it was important to to how the town ran uh, practically, to, to garbage pickup, to when the pool is open, things like this. But I had no idea of, that it was an integral part of the um, the spirit of the town, and that that really shocked me. And it did it did encourage me to go around speaking to residents and hear how much they really did love this little town in Manitoba that nobody pays much attention to. Nobody, it's not a special place in the sense that people make a pilgrimage to visit. It's not, um, it doesn't have a big, any big attractions. It, it does have the happy rock uh, thing by the road, but maybe less said about that, the better. But it, it's really uh, how, how the people in the town can really, really love a place and feel that the neighbors and friends who they elected to look after it had really betrayed them had let them down and there was a real feeling of personal loss we'll see if they get better with a fresh start jr thank you for walking us through this oh no problem uh i hope that um this piece encourages people to take a another look at their own local councils at their own community and see and 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 to be to be active in that because it is we, we can get a little bit um, blinded by the big global stuff, the big national news, and that, you know all that is important. There's nothing wrong with following that, but the, the stuff that happens in our own backyards is is very very important to to who we are, to how we define ourselves. Because it doesn't matter where you are in the world, people always ask you where are you from, and if if your answer to that is is not a positive or doesn't give you good feelings it's that's that's uh, that's that's a real shame jr patterson writing for the walrus that was the big story if you want more head to the big you can of course find us on twitter 
at the Big Story FPN. I love stories about small town fights. If you have any, pass them on. You can also email us with those kind of stories. Hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And of course, call us. Leave us a voicemail, 416-935-5935. If you're in a podcast player right now and it lets you rate or it lets you review, make sure you do. And if you want to hear it on a smart speaker, just ask it to play The Big Story Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.